0: they fire at our family our will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy greetings and welcome to out of the margins i am your hostess manuela arciniegas director of the andrews family fund today we are talking with jessica nolan executive director of the young women's freedom center in california jessica will tell us a little bit about the freedom 2030 campaign a tenure organizing cultural change and legislative campaign spearheaded by the Sister Warriors Freedom Coalition to end the incarceration of girls, women, and TGNC people in California. Young Women's Freedom Center has been instrumental in articulating a visionary future for young women in California. And we're excited to learn from her about what it takes to develop the leadership of the most directly impacted youth at the center and watch them blaze trails and manifest change in their communities. Join us. I grew up in the Bay Area.
1: I spent a lot of my childhood on the streets, in and out of detention, in group homes. And I was actually first introduced to Young Women's Freedom Center, formerly Center for Young Women's Development when I was in juvenile hall and I I was told by some amazing community organizer that somehow got in there to talk to us about this place that hired girls that lived and worked on the streets and that's how I got involved and I was hired at 17 as a community health outreach worker and the idea of the center was that young folks that had grown up surviving, navigating systems, living and working on the streets, are really powerful and resilient and have figured out so much with so little. And so the Young Women's Freedom Center hired us, did deep training, and kind of built off our expertise as community experts. And we went back into the communities and did outreach, STD education, needle exchange, HIV counseling and testing. And I always tell that story because for me, having been incarcerated 17 times, been in five group homes and drug rehabs and, you know, fix yourself programs. But the Young Women's Freedom Center was the first place where I was told I was powerful. But beyond that, I was, I was with peers and other powerful young women and girls and trans folks that had grown up on the streets that were in their power. I was told my voice mattered and everything that I had been through was actually what we needed to make change. And so, you know, that was in 1996. I've been in this role as ED for four years. And that that's really where our work is still centered in those fundamental beliefs that Young people who have really experienced the most corrosive injustice in our country are the ones that we actually, they don't need to be saved, but they need to be supported, they need to have economic opportunities, they need to have space to develop a critical analysis, to build with peers, to find their voice and build collective power, and then if we want to create a different society whether it's county, country, that these are the folks we need to lead us. So that's what our work is centered on, investing in their leadership, creating access and pipelines, and letting them lead us to the structural change we need.
0: Powerful. What does it take to activate a young person to dream a different future, Mm -hmm. a different community, particularly the young women that you organize?
1: I think for young people to dream, one thing I always like to, to keep in the back of my mind is we're like, what, three and four generations into mass incarceration. And with the rise of mass incarceration, we also saw a rise of social services and all of these kind of youth programs that have created a dynamic of, you know, whether well-intentioned or not, right? But you're broken, let me fix you. You need something, we have it. It's a really deficit model. Like, I grew up on welfare, I've been on welfare as a single parent, and, you know, there's welfare to work programs. But it's like, you can go to this, but you can't go to this. You can go to this kind of school. And so everything is set up for young people not to dream, right, to not have full access. And so we believe that it's meeting young people where they're at, working with them to understand that they already have everything that they need. They are experts. And part of the work we say is, how do we create space for folks to decriminalize themselves, to begin to look at their own lives in the context of the world and look at the world in the context of their lives? And so for us, that's really just creating space for young folks to do that work. And I think another piece is, especially when we're talking about young people that are navigating the justice system, is for the most part, when you dig in, folks are related, are in these systems, aside from racism and and, uh, is poverty, and folks are figuring out how to survive and how to get, just how to live with nothing. And so for us, it's economic opportunities as well. It's opportunities for healing, for self-care, for building siblinghood, and creating a space that demands that people can come as they are and bring their whole selves. That's really where we start the work. And I, I guess the last piece of that is when we say it's a little bit, it's beyond intersectional, right? Because the response to part of that siloed way in which we think about young people or what they're going through is in the frame of capitalism and white supremacy. But if we are deeply acknowledging that these are whole people, with whole experiences and whole families and communities and whole historical experiences and, and bring all of that with them, then, then that's a foundation to, to start from.
0: So how do you define healing? And what when you hire staff, what are some of the, the qualities that you look for in them in, in terms of their ability to hold healing space for others?
1: Mm-hmm. I think we always say that like to work at the center, you got to be doing your work and that there's there's no destination, but that we're on these healing journeys. And if you're not doing your work, it's 100% gonna show up. And this isn't the right space for you. I think it's a lot of nuanced things, but part of it is around folks own critical analysis of their own experience. It's being comfortable, being in space, being vulnerable, holding space we create a culture at the center centered on healing and also a deep recognition that we've been told we were broken, that our communities are broken, that our moms and grandmothers didn't know what was right and that the system had the right thing. And so it's also giving space to talk about that, right? To know that Healing doesn't only come in the form of kind of Eurocentric traditional talk therapy, and that many young people that have been in foster care and juvenile systems and have been prescribed mental health services by the very system that's harmed them. So, we have cultural practice around having our altars in our office, we do healing there, we have a woman of color healing collective. With is like all types of healing, talk therapy, Reiki, mental health, yoga, you name it. We also think culture and folks being able to connect back to their cultural roots and think of their own stories, their own family's experience, their own experience. We call them social biographies but using an economic, political, historical, social, and spiritual lens to really dig into our own stories. It's just a super practice that's embedded across our programs.
0: It sounds like it's really transformative and very rigorous. Like, how do you get people to actively build something different that goes against everything they've been told about themselves, everything they've been told they deserve, and that to the point of it's affected our psyche, right, as we showed Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what are young people asking for right now, and what are the alternative societies, communities, cultures that they're trying to build? We're releasing a report in a few months, and it is, it's
1: about the harms of juvenile incarceration, but it's from the expertise of 52 young women, trans, and gender expansive young people that were incarcerated in San Francisco's juvenile hall, I was talking to my mom yesterday, who's 74, who's also grew up in foster care and was incarcerated in the same juvenile hall I was in San Francisco. And we were talking about young people, poor young folks of color that have experienced these systems. They've always been saying the same thing. Like communities have always been saying, this is harmful. This is not the way to to support my child. There's abuse happening here. There's sexual violence happening here. There's physical violence but I say we as a society haven't listened. And I think we see that with the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, right? Like these are not news stories. I think it's on us, I'm saying systems, individuals as a society to begin to listen differently because young people do know what they want and need. And an example of that is when we bring young people in, they say, I'm gonna open a group home. I'm gonna be a probation officer. And I think if we're listening correctly, what we're hearing is, I want to show humanity and love to these young folks. i want to do things differently. It's not, I want to replicate the system. It's how we listen and how we respond. One thing I've heard from young people, including myself, is I don't want another case manager. I don't want to be court-ordered to therapy. I want a job. And so what would it look like if we actually met the needs of young people with economic resources. Like what if people had what they need to make decisions for themselves that are not based on survival? The visions that folks have is where communities are resourced, where there's freedom, where there's self-determination and decision-making and joy and happiness. And it's just frustrating because it's like, it's not that hard. (laughs) like people have been saying it young folks still say it so how do we actually transition our responses
0: to support that that's really powerful i hear you just reminding us that the answers have already been articulated for generations and Mm -hmm. i'm curious what you see in this moment of like increased attention to the harms of like police and communities potentially, or all of these folks who were previously not engaged in racial justice, social justice movements, suddenly paying attention, not because it's the first time a black man has been killed on, or a a young woman of color has been killed on, on television, but because for some reason, this moment with the pandemic feels different. Are people listening more deeply now What do you think is actually happening in this moment? And what are some of the things you might caution us to do and not do to really push forward with the momentum that, and the attention that seems to be emerging?
1: Man, that's a really good question. I feel like there's probably so many answers to that too. I think that people are listening now more than before, in my opinion. And I think folks who have had the, privilege or luxury i don't even know of not thinking about it are i think in this moment some of the things that need to happen is acknowledgement is one thing and making actual the hard work of changing even oneself is something else without saying names even in some of the counties where we work in where it all sounds good like folks are on board for radical transformation like let's decriminalize youth but when it comes to the actual hard work of transformation that folks get stuck and so i think there has to be a call for all of us to deeply deeply learn unlearn and challenge our own biases anti-blackness racism and as individuals but as they've been um, as they're a part of our structures and particularly for those in power from probation to judges so folks that are kind of like i think we can do something differently like to be able to challenge your teams, your, like, everybody even further is going to be super critical right now, right? Because I do think folks default to what what we've been doing. And I think, again, the key is to, like, taking lead from those most impacted, from formerly incarcerated people, from young folks that have navigated um, the system, from Black folks, from brown folks that are doing their work right? That have been leading this work for a long time. It's like what you said, the answers are there. I think there's some openings. And I'll say that even with it, like literally on fire outside, and with the pandemic and the uprisings, the hope to me and the, the like, the future is the young folks. They really do have the answers and that power and the passion and, and the drive and are thinking differently. And so we got to get behind them.
0: Do you think, Jessica, they teaching these probation officers and folks more about holding power how to dream and to really come up with something different? I would say
1: yes and no, right? Like, when we meet with young folks, like in San Francisco, we, are, we voted to shut down Juvenile Hall. At the same time in California, the youth prison system is being shut down. So now if counties for their Quote unquote, the hardest youth that they would have sent to youth prison, they can't send them there. And we're shutting down the local facilities. What does that mean? We're not going to let youth get transferred to the adult system. When we have young folks in the room, and what you'll see in our report and their blueprint is we can take incarceration and criminalization off the table. That's not the goal. I think it's getting. Again, folks in power to take their lead, to listen, to think differently. We're close in San Francisco and there's still the kind of the bureaucracy blinders and the inability to dream. And so when you get young folks in the room, they're like, oh, no, we've thought of that. What about this? And we're partnering with some legal expertise. I mean, it's, it really is a new dream. It's not even an alternative to criminalization and incarceration. It's building a different ecosystem. To me, the true meaning of transformative justice, right? If we believe in long-term abolition, then what is it that we're investing in now so that we can create new and emergent
0: models? And, and they're clear. What would be your advice to folks who are making decisions around public budgets, to philanthropy, to other power brokers? What should we be investing in now? What are some of the choices and actions people can take in the next two years that you think will really set us up for abolition and a really transformative society for our young people? So
1: one is, I feel like to
0: philanthropy, fund groups on the ground that are
1: not just campaign focus but then our focus on building power right because to me campaigns will come and campaigns will go but there are groups on the ground like I think of sister warriors for example that it's like dang you know we launched and we have a launch before shelter in place and I'm like sister warriors like across the the California are like organized it's just like super organic and that's because the ability to invest in people power to mobilize i think that's one and i think two when groups that are most proximate to the problems are able to have space and time to build a critical analysis dream and build alternatives and you couple that with resources. What we're able to do is to literally create very comprehensive strategies for policy reform, for system shutdown, and budget critical divestment and critical reinvestment. Because what we know is that it, it, in the systems, people, I feel like, are so thinking about the current structures and the current structures pool federal, state, and local dollars based on the way that that department or thing is set up. So what you have to do is create the the new thing and then figure out where the money can come from. I think that's why philanthropy plays such a key role, especially when we look at, at government budgets and divestment. We've been seeing through our campaigns and the young folks, it's it's not as simple as saying 300,000 to incarcerate, now we're just gonna move that. But what we have seen is young folks getting deep into the scopes of, why is probation taking so much money from education? Like, Don't we have a whole educational system? <laughs> like Let's shrink their purview. So if they're not allowed to get that money, how do we block that? There's just been so many rich ideas from switching local policy codes to putting up new structures in place. And it's really come from the brilliance and expertise of young folks that have experienced all of this. Maybe we don't know how all the budgets work and stuff, but that's okay. It's actually better, we found, when folks can dream and think big and then let's bring in a budget expert to train us or to, sh- to show us the possibilities without
0: blocking the dreams first. I mean, the ability to say yes to the dream yeah. from the get-go. If you had to give some advice to the nonprofit sector, to the folks running these organizations, what would you say to them in regards to what it takes to really lead, to lead with vision at the center? I'm sure many people already are trying super hard to do that. And there's some like baked in limitations within the nonprofit industrial complex that welches creativity from the get go. So I'm just curious, what would you say to those leaders who are trying to lead with creativity and encountering obstacles?
1: I could just talk from our own experience when I stepped into this role, um, A difficult situation. I'll say that. But we made some political decisions. And we do services, but we're not a service organization. We are a a radical, feminist, political organization that believes in the power of people most impacted to lead. With that at the center, and with the deep belief that these systems aren't gonna change themselves. We've been asking and modifying and moderately reforming for 27 years because we'll be 27 in um, February. And I don't want to cuss on the podcast, but like F that, like we are, we know the power that our folks have. We know that fire when you coming home from prison and you're leaving all your sisters in there And that there is something about what you know about that experience and what you know about those humans who you love and that who you will fight for no matter what, that this other kind of power, what we've been able to do is keep that at the center and figure out how do we navigate a nonprofit that is not set up to support movement, that is not set up to support revolution or power, but that's set up as a part of a capitalist structure to be very clear on where we're going to, yes, do we do youth development? Do we provide youth jobs? Yes. So we can secure those funding and we are also going to keep our eye on where we're going. So it's hard work, but I think it's just keeping our keeping what we know at the center and figuring out how to navigate. One thing I'll say that we have at the center that's powerful is we've all grown up on the streets. We know how to hustle. We know how to survive and we bring all of that resilience and brilliance with us. We have to be so cautious that we are not upholding pedestal leadership. So my role as the executive director is to support the brilliance and leadership of all of our team and these young folks to lead and with that if i go really it doesn't matter because we got 20 other folks ready and or leading so i think it's a combination of all those things and baking in time to reflect where are we off track what are we not doing and just be bold and even that when you're talking about oppressed people women women of color trans folks non-binary folks there's all that comes with how should we be? Oh, we're supposed to dress professionally. We're supposed to talk like this. We're supposed to know this language. We're, and it's, you know what? Step into the power of the expertise that we do bring and start from there. So those are some ideas.
0: Now, my last question for you, Jessica, is in 10 years time, you're walking into your organization or your neighborhood and it is already everything you're fighting for.
1: Can you describe it to me? I think it's like people living free, like kids playing outside, parents going to work, not the kind of, there's like a way you navigate the hood. You're always like, when the police are coming, you kind of keeping, you have your shoulders up. And I think that that is gone. There's like a a serenity. Like I can always tell for the most part, oh yeah, you just got out, right? Because there's a certain toughness. And I think like being able to shed because people are safe and have what they need and that's what I picture you know folks just having what they need and not feeling policed and beyond not feeling policed like being able to just be
0: and and resources that's a sure sign drop your shoulders you you get to live with dignity yeah there's not a target on your back Yeah. Psychologically, socially, physically. I get it. My last, last question, I promise for you. Mm -hmm. What makes you a dreamer? I was thinking about that the other day because I was like, God, I am a little bit of a dreamer, actually. I
1: think one thing I I picked up when I was, you know, in Hall as a kid, because I dropped out of school in seventh grade. My mom did read to me when I was little. And I seen my mom in the 80s. She was on a round of welfare reforms. And she decided... Um, she didn't, she was going to go to nursing school and they didn't support that. So we got kicked off of welfare. And I remember her driving me and my brother on her little on her mountain bike and dropping us off at school and then going to school and um, seeing her graduate and just like, you know, when I was in group homes, they sued my mom and tried to take her house like all these things happened And just seeing her persistence for one. And then one thing I picked up at the center, too, was like writing. We have a program that we start in Juneau Hall called Writing for Power, and it's about finding your voice. But I think that and just like possibility, the thing that motivates me in this work more than any of our campaign wins policies is when I see the the young people we work with and the OGs that are coming home, it's just those sparks and like, oh my God, I'm powerful. I can do this. I'm in my power. And to me, that's it. That's hope. It's just been such an honor in four years to see folks like come to the center. And now we just had some staff transitions and we got folks that are like, I'm just like, who are you? And, and that's it. That's part of the dream. All
0: those things. So <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You are my my, my fantasy (laughs) hero. So many of you and your little sisters. All of the young people that I meet, every time I go to the center, you feel such a powerful love for each other and for what all young people deserve. And it is unequivocal. It is, y'all are clear what side you're on and who you're building for. And it and it is vibrant and beautiful. And so I just want to thank you always for who you are. My dream for you is a whole lot of energy and health and resources and time and space to love on yourself and love on your young people and keep manifesting. You're amazing, Jessica. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank for- you. You are too, sis. Stay blessed always. We're so grateful for your work. Oh, I appreciate you. Thank you. That was Jessica Nolan, Executive Director of the Young Women's Freedom Center. And this was Out of the Margins. Stay tuned and join us for our next episode. Thank you for listening.